Bomber describes the real-life manhunt for a serial bomber. The events are sometimes graphic and intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Last time on Bomber. Hey, uh, I don't know what's going on. My neighbor, uh, something exploded or something. This was some sort of an explosion from a device on the home's front porch. Police are now backpedaling what they once classified as a murder. They're now labeling suspicious. As soon as I heard it switched to suspicious death was like where it's like, you know, it felt like they were going to put less attention. How many more did this person or persons plant overnight? How many more unsuspecting people may go out front and handle a package and suffer the kind of injuries or, or loss of life that we've already seen? Ten days after a bomb exploded on the front steps of a suburban East Austin home and killed a 39-year-old father, another bomb exploded. Another fatality. Frozen in the house and people are injured in here. They opened up packages and it exploded from outside because my grandson is not breathing. This week, Operation Austin Bomb kicks into high gear as hundreds of investigators descend upon Austin, Texas, desperate to stop a serial bomber before the next explosion. Ma'am, do you know if, any, if there's any fire in the house from the explosion? Or is it... uh, smoke. I'm Jason Puckett, and this is Bomber. Into the When the second blast went off on the morning of March 12, 2018, KVU's Jay Wallace was once again on the scene. Now, like the first time, it happened before 7 a.m. The home where the explosion took place was on another suburban East Austin street, just over five miles from downtown and about a 12-mile drive from where the first explosion took place. With no word from police yet, Wallace was careful not to say the bomb was connected to the one 10 days earlier. These are not directly connected. I have no way of knowing that. But worth mentioning, this explosion did happen earlier this month. Uh, To have two so closely connected um, time-wise, it's just worth mentioning at this point. But despite what Jay was saying on air, he felt sure there was a connection between this explosion and the first deadly bomb. Once that second explosion happens, no matter what chief manley says you still know something's up there's just that gut feeling all right we might have something bigger on our hands we started to learn about the victims of the blast police say a 17 year old and a woman brought in a package from their front porch that package exploded when the 17 year old opened it inside their home now he died from his injuries the woman is expected to be okay she is at the hospital KVU's Tony Plahetsky heard about the second explosion from his contacts within the police department. And at that point, they really didn't know much more other than they had a 17-year-old victim who was dead and a woman who was very seriously injured and was taken to the hospital. But it did become clear to them very early on that yet again, uh, they had the victim of a package explosion and with the same type MO, a package left in the overnight hours and found by a resident early in the morning when he opened his front door. As with the first bombing, Interim Police Chief Brian Manley was at the scene of the explosion right away. Uh, we set up a command post at the scene, and I think obviously everyone at that point had recognized that this was a serial attack. And we worked together to identify, again, areas of responsibility. 
We made the decision that since ATF had taken all of the evidence from the first scene, it just made sense that ATF would be responsible for collecting all bomb evidence at the scene number two. Seeing Manley talking to some other officers for a good good chunk of time before he came over and talked to us. And what that tells me is he was really making sure he got the story right and that he was going to choose his words carefully. And I don't want to assume, but I mean... What that tells me is he realizes this is a serious situation and I need to talk to the media. I need to make sure what people hear, right, what they tell us and then we're going to tell the people. He wants to make sure it's accurate, it's correct, and that he's not sensationalizing anything and that he's telling us exactly what we need to know. We are looking at these incidents as being related based on similarities that we have seen in the initial evidence that we have on hand here today compared to what we found on the scene of that explosion that took place uh, a week back. KVU's Jenny Lee was also on scene that day. Perhaps what is even more alarming about this incident is that police are now tying this case with another deadly package explosion that happened on March 2nd. In an instant, the city of Austin, Texas, realized they might have a serial bomber on the loose. The explosion that killed Stefan House 10 days earlier was no longer just an isolated incident. The FBI special agent in charge of the case was Chris Combs. He'd been looped in early on the investigation, soon after the first explosion, but the second blast took things up another notch. I think when the second bomb happened, you, know, you jumped to conclusions. Hey, th- this could be a serial bomber. We started discussing that. We're getting updates from the scene, from our Austin Police Department partners, from the FBI that was on scene. We were already talking here about what assets are we going to start moving into Austin. And for the first time that month, and probably in Austin's history, police sent out a warning to all residents. The messages were alarming. They are putting out a warning this morning. Do not open any packages if you not if you are not expecting them. This is after the second deadly package explosion here in East Austin. The police were having press conferences right away, announcing to the community what was happening. And it really was at that point that they began a very aggressive public awareness campaign to try to tell people not to open suspicious packages left at their doors. We had done a press conference, uh, again, to advise the community what had happened, and we talked very uh, significantly about uh, suspicious packages, handling packages, really trying to put that message out about the safety and, and really the need for people to look out for each other. You might remember after the first bomb, police floated the idea that perhaps the victim had set the bomb off himself accidentally. That theory was officially no longer in play. They have now changed the death of Anthony House, the victim from that first death explosion, from suspicious death now to homicide. He is, they have reclassified that death. Inevitably, we started to learn more about the second victim. This time, a much younger life cut short by a senseless act of violence. A teenager. He was killed immediately when he opened the deadly cardboard box left on the front steps. His mother was nearby. She was injured but was going to survive the blast. Draylen Mason was 17 years old. He was very well known in the Austin music community. He was a classical musician who um, was very beloved and very, very talented, and by all accounts was bound for tremendous things in the music profession. Yeah, this one, in terms of just impacting people, this one is, is, is what... 
seemed to really have an impact on a lot of people in Austin. In the weeks to come, we'd learn a lot about what a special kid Draylen Mason was. Adriana Adame is a teacher at East Austin College Prep. That's where Draylen studied. He was just a really talented kid who had so much going for him. And he's gone, and I don't, I don't know how I'm going to walk into my English class anymore without seeing him looking at me and asking me what's going on in our book. His death is, is one moment, and that's not, that doesn't define him, and that's not who he was. Who he was was a kid who helped everybody else and smiled and spoke out whenever he could and, and was interested in social justice and, and talked about things that were unfair in the world and wanted to change things. Faye Gasbin also teaches at East Austin College Prep. She remembers talking about Draylen performing on stage. He was a magnificent, courageous, talented young man. But every day that I saw him in the hallways, he would say, hi, Miss Gosbon, and I would say, hi, love, how's it going? And he would say, fine, I said, you know it's the year. And he said, yes, ma'am. I said, are you ready? He said, yes, ma'am, you're gonna be there? And I would tell him, I would never miss it for the world. I want to see you on that stage. Moses Williams considered Draylen family. He had been Draylen's martial arts teacher for more than a decade. Right now, you can tell I'm still at forward emotions. Uh, he was one of the kids that I could call my own. You know, his life was cut too short, so I'm, I'm really destroyed. And when I talk about it, it's kind of hard for me to uh, fester what happened to him. With two bombs now, two people killed and another injured, police went to work looking for any links between the victims. Now, because House and the second victim from this one are both African-Americans, Austin police say that this, uh, these two incidents may be a hate crime. One of the things that became very clear with both package bombings, both one and two, is that they were both east of Interstate 35, which is an area that has a lot of minority communities. In both cases, uh, the victims were African-American men. And in a city that has a a relatively small African-American population, that was noteworthy as well. There was another link between the victims, a family connection. One of the things that police learned very early after uh, Draylen Mason was killed is that Anthony House's father-in-law is the Reverend Freddie Dixon. And the Reverend Freddie Dixon, who was the former pastor at a well-known predominantly African-American church here in Austin, was good friends, is good friends, with Draylen Mason's grandfather. And so authorities started wondering if there was some sort of connection that led back even to the church. And they actually went to the church and started questioning members of that church to figure out if there was anyone who may have had any animosity against either family or both families. To a lot of people, to investigators even, it seemed unlikely that the family connection couldn't be a factor in these killings. I mean, how could two bombs left on two doorsteps miles away from each other be random when there was a connection like this? Without, again, having any specific motive to go on or any real suspects at this point, we were looking for any connection. Uh, and, and I think that that's the sign of, of, of well-seasoned investigators. And, and, and that was the team that we had here. They didn't exclude any possibility. One of the people brought in early on to investigate the bombings was Austin Police Homicide Detective Rolando Ramirez. 
As soon as the first bomb was reported, he was called to the scene. And now with another deadly blast, he was once again the lead homicide investigator. Well, when I heard that, the first thing I did, I asked everybody, has anybody worked a case like this? Whether it's in the uh, device used. And uh, out of everybody in the office, no one had ever worked a case where a device was used. They did work other explosions, but that was because of uh, natural gas or something else, but not an actual improvised device. For Ramirez and his colleagues, there was nothing odd about a murder, but a murder using an explosive device as the weapon was something new. When I asked the question about, has anybody worked a case like this? And everybody responded with no. Um, You know, it got a little bit of... It got my attention because then I'm thinking, why Austin? Who's doing this to Austin? I've been here almost 18 years, and nothing like this has ever happened. Why now? Uh, Why the areas that uh, they targeted? The fact that a teenager was now one of the victims hit Ramirez hard. It was sort of like a a personal hit because it's part of the community. It's a young child uh, that had the rest of his life to live. So that, that was the... The worst feeling, and then realizing that the person or persons doing this did not care who the victim was. And so you take it personal because you want to make sure you give the family and the victim the, the respect they deserve and do a proper investigation to um, not, there, it's not going to change anything, but at least it gives them uh, calm of that we did our job. We all wanted to know more about the packages. What did they look like? How were the bombs triggered? KVU's Jenny Lee. I asked him at the press conference, was there any particular specific markings on the packages? And he said, of course there were, but they're not releasing that at this time to protect the integrity of the investigation. He also said they know what kind of explosive uh, it was in this incident, as well as the March 2nd one. And again, not releasing that information at this time to protect the integrity of the investigation, because they obviously don't want the public to know too much at this time. One of the most disturbing things about these packages is that they really resembled a box that you would get from ordering something from Amazon. They were packed about the size of a book. They were designed to go off when the recipient opened one of the flaps of the boxes. Over the past year, in the months after the bombings came to an end, we learned more about how the bombs were constructed. But what we do know about the packages is that they at least did involve batteries that involved uh, snap connectors. Um, and, and they were made from common household items that could be purchased, you know, at big box retailers or local mom and pop hardware stores. But remember, we didn't know those details yet. We only knew what police were willing to share in the interest of keeping us all safe and stopping another bomb from going off. At KVU, I could feel the story building. We were going into uncharted waters. The usual news cycle had been brusquely interrupted. We were now dealing with terrified residents. We were talking about a hate crime, murders, a serial bomber. Yeah, at that point, the anxiety in Austin really began ratcheting up. And it became clear to those of us in the media that this was going to be an all-hands-on-deck kind of story. It really was a signal that this was happening. We didn't know who was doing it. We didn't know why they were doing it. But we all knew that it really became a time when we all, as Austin residents, had to be on guard. And we were also going through our own little moments of fear and anxiety. 
KVU investigative reporter Erica Proffer. I remember going home during all of this and seeing some sort of uh, what ended up being trash that had blown out of my neighbor's recycling bin and thinking, should I go and approach this cardboard box that is laying on my street? And I didn't know what to do. I and and I remember sitting there going, I can't get into my driveway. It's it's blocking my driveway, um, and you know I I really don't want to call authorities if it's not not a big deal. Um, and oddly enough, I think what I did was just sort of drive around it, um, and then wait for a few minutes. And at that point, uh, I realized that it was it wasn't anything. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of laughed at myself of, you know, for being so on guard um, for thinking that, you know, here it could be right in front of my house as well. But I think it's reflective of how we all felt in the community. Something to keep in mind here. March is usually when the news coming out of Austin is all about South by Southwest. That was actually supposed to be my primary beat. So this is all unfolding when the annual Music and Technology Festival is taking place. So instead of the usual headlines from the international and national media who were in Austin, the story really got turned to the fact that Austin was having these very strange package explosions happening. As a local Austin reporter, I found myself reporting on the annual Music Festival, getting a few hours of sleep, and then covering the bombings all in the same day. It was pretty surreal. Jason Puckett, my colleague, he has the tough assignment of covering live music, food, fun, and oh, yeah. great weather here at Vic Mathias Shores. Yeah, you're making fun of Brian. I have to point out, Albert's been grooving out here to Al Freaky. So. But even with the news of a second bomb exploding on the morning of March 12th, South by Southwest was pretty much unaffected. The festival in downtown Austin seemed a world away from the grim reality of a serial bomber on the loose in East Austin. Behind the scenes, though, police weren't taking any chances. I think authorities were concerned that we had tens of thousands of people here. There were questions about whether or not someone had come to town as part of South by Southwest and may be doing this. And so there were a lot of concerns. There was a concert that was to be held during South by Southwest that was, in fact, canceled after someone called in a bomb threat on the venue where it was scheduled to be happening. Authorities later arrested someone, though, and found that they had no connection to the bombing incidents that had been happening. Back in East Austin, on Old Fort Hill Drive, neighbors were anxious, and there were some tense moments. There was an evacuation that happened. A second package also discovered at that house. Nothing happened. Nothing uh, obviously exploded. The bomb squad opened that package. Nothing detonated. uh, But they Uh, evacuated a large portion of the street just to be safe. It was all a sickening redo of the scene 10 days earlier in another East Austin neighborhood after the first explosion. But the fear was ratcheted up. You could hear it in the voices of investigators and Chief Brian Manley. We were asking questions about ideology and motive. And for the first time in the case, some of us were thinking about names like Eric Robert Rudolph and Timothy McVeigh, infamous convicted bombers, cold-blooded killers. We wondered what kind of person could build a bomb like this. But just as we were asking these questions and trying to make some kind of sense of the situation, 
we could sense something new was happening. Something had come in. Brian Manley was in the middle of a press conference talking to reporters about the past 10 days. No one was ready for what we learned next. As we started to focus back on the investigation is when I noticed a kind of a, a gathering of, of people that, that appeared to be, you know, obviously discussing something very concerning and, and they started to head in my direction and that's when they came up and let me know that we'd had another bomb go off. This is the Austin Police Department 911. Do you need police, fire, or EMS? I need ambulance. Let me get them on. Okay, I heard an explosion. I don't know what happened. Okay. Okay. Are you, are you near where the explosion occurred? Yes, ma'am, but I don't know what happened. I just heard it. No, the police is right here. That was like right around noon, I think. Or, or, because I remember our, our midday show was, was ending. Yeah, it was about uh, five hours later when there was yet another report of a package explosion, this one injuring a 75-year-old woman. What is the address of the emergency? Another round of frantic, hysterical calls to Austin 911. Another explosion. Hello? Another person injured. the the lady handed it to a little boy. We found out where it happened. Southeast Austin, Galindo Street. It's a small street made up of immigrant families and small wood-framed homes. In fact, if you look at the map of Austin, you can almost draw a line from where that first explosion took place. Follow it south to the second explosion, and then continue just a bit until you hit Galindo. If there had been any doubts about a serial bomber, the third explosion brought those to an end. Okay, we have help on the way. Are you with the patient, sir? Yes, right here. How many people are on? Okay. Okay. All right, I have help on the way. How old is the person that's hurt? Uh, on the 70s, ma'am. On the 70s. And the M.O. was the same. A package dropped off on the victim's doorstep. Okay, how, how is the patient that's hurt, male or female? Imagine Brian Manley trying to stay calm and protect the city, but hyper-aware that the city was under attack. Absolute concern because we'd had one bomb that had already gone off that morning, killing a young man, seriously injuring his mother. We've now had a second bomb go off. And you're thinking, how many more did this person or persons plant overnight? How many more unsuspecting people may go out front and handle a package and suffer the kind of injuries or, or loss of life that we've already seen? So. It's, it's the absolute need that you have got to get out. You've got to get your message out. You want people to understand what's happening, and you want to make sure you're getting that message as far and wide as you can so that nobody else handles a suspicious package. But the reality that it's so hard to get information out at times, so we were working again with, with regular media, with social media, just wanting to get it out to everyone. That third explosion absolutely put Austin on notice that our city was under attack. And I think it really became a point of alarm for law enforcement as well, that they have to continue pushing out the message for people not to open packages left at their door if they were not expecting them. The victim, 75-year-old Esperanza Hope Herrera, lay wounded at Del Seton Medical Center. Her elderly mother managed to escape out of the back of the home, and amazingly, there were no other injuries. On the morning of May 12th, their mother, 93-year-old Mary Moreno, was sitting in her favorite chair in her kitchen. she just finished breakfast when her daughter and full-time caretaker, Esperanza Herrera, affectionately called Hope, went outside the front door. 
She assumed a package left overnight was her mother's mail-order medication. Then a blast rocked the Moreno home. Police once again honed in on a possible motive or connection between the attacks. The victim uh, 10 days ago and the victim early this morning, they were both African-American. And the victim here at this scene was Hispanic. They have not ruled out anything, including this being racially motivated. We began speaking at this very early on because we recognized that all three bombs, uh, the first three bombs, had all taken place east of I-35 and all of our victims were victims of color. So we immediately started talking about that. That became part of the investigation. We still did not have anything that made us believe that it was hate-related, but we didn't have reason to rule it out either. So that's why we continually, when we talked about this, we emphasized the fact that while we don't have any indication at this point that it's related to terrorism or hate, we also cannot exclude it. Because the last thing you want to do is focus in on one motivation or, or, or ideology because you might limit your focus and miss things that lead you in another direction. There was considerable discussion about whether or not someone was attacking minority communities, whether or not this was a fringe group that was going after Hispanic people and African-American people in the community because all three victims were, in fact, minorities. No white people had been targeted at all at that point. We were all wondering how many more explosions would happen that day, that week. How many more deadly packages were going to be left on doorsteps? And was this really happening in our hometown? And in the meantime, we had work to do. Once we knew that we had a a possible serial bomber, that is when everything ramped up really, really fast. And the only thing that I can compare it to is something like hurricane coverage, where you are at the station nearly 24 hours, going home, getting a quick nap, maybe a change of clothes, getting back to the station. But behind the scenes and huddled in conference rooms, FBI agents and detectives were painstakingly digging through evidence, looking for that one piece that one shred of evidence that could point them in the right direction. The direction of a killer. FBI Special Agent in Charge Chris Combs knew they didn't have a minute to waste. When the third bomb happened, uh, then there was no question. We had a serial bomber. Thoughts quickly raced to, how do we get in front of this guy? And uh, I said to many of my staff, you know, hey, I, we don't want to have another Eric Rudolph, where it went on for years. We're going to do everything physically possible to get up there and get on top of this and stop it. And we had to send massive FBI resources in Austin. Next time on Bomber. They've been successful in three incidents here in Austin, and we're not going to stop. We're going to go all out with our federal partners, our local partners, and we won't rest until we've identified the suspect and taken him into custody. As far as being a skilled bomb maker, do you have to be skilled? Essentially, the answer is no. There's enough material on the Internet to build a bomb, and that's not a surprise to anyone. Into the Bomber is a production of Vault Studios and KVU. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and other major listening platforms. Our executive producer is Will Johnson. My thanks to the people of Austin, my colleagues at KVU, and the men and women of the Austin Police Department for taking part in this podcast. 